Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Just Check In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I was scrolling through my Twitter the other week and I saw the news that conservative commentator Dave Rubin had announced he and his partner were expecting twins. Dave is gay, so naturally he and his partner can't biologically conceive in the natural way. I saw a lot of pushback from it from some women I follow and a lot of chat about an underworld of surrogacy and exploitation of women I was not seeing. I wanted to find out more and find out what is going on in this supposed world. I was recommended to contact Jennifer Lyle, who is the president of an organisation called the Centre for Biodiversity Ethics and Culture Network. Jennifer has worked in healthcare for 25 years and combines this experience as a paediatric critical care nurse, a hospital administrator and a senior level nursing manager with a deep passion to speak for those who have no voice, namely women who have turned to surrogacy and been exploited by it. She has made two films on surrogacy called Big Fertility and Breeders, a subclass of women. She's also made two films on egg donation called Exploitation and Maggie's Story. We'll be doing a deep dive into exploitation and big fertility specifically on this podcast. These films expose what is going on in the surrogacy industry and tells the stories of women who have got involved in it. In this episode, we talk about the truth behind surrogacy, why a surrogate birth is so much more riskier than a natural birth, and the mental health impact on surrogates who have to give up the children they give birth to back to the parents who have paid for it. We ethically explore whether there can ever be a morally correct path for someone to be a surrogate and the ethics behind it. We talk about whether arguments against surrogacy are homophobic given the prominence of some celebrity gay couples who turn to surrogacy and we also talk about the statistics behind surrogate deaths post-childbirth. For Jennifer's mental health, Jennifer spent an entire year in hospital as a 10-year-old which had a huge impact on her life path. We discuss the negatives of it and how it inspired her to take this healthcare journey, her parents' divorce as an adult and the toll that working critical care took on her mental health. So this is how my check-in with Jennifer Lyle went. Jennifer, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. After very good friend of the pod, Helena, recommended I contact you, I knew I had to get you on to talk about this hugely stigmatised world and, and murky underworld, really, of surrogacy. So first of all, how are you? Well, I'm well. It's early morning here in California and it's Monday, so I'm just getting ready to hit the ground running for a busy week. Excellent. And it's a bank holiday Monday here in the UK. So I decided to do this on my day off, which, you know, this is part of the job. This is what I do then. So there we go. This podcast, Jennifer, is all about having uncomfortable conversations that other people don't want to have. And surrogacy, as I've done the research and as I've watched your films, ranks very high on that list. But I want this to be an educational episode too, to help female listeners and male listeners alike. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? You bet. Before we talk about your films and the work you've done in that space, Jen, I just want to talk about your professional journey to start the pod. So tell me first how and why you became inspired to enter healthcare and how you got to where you are today. 
Yeah, I think, you know, we spoke earlier over the phone and as a young child at the age of 10, I ended up with a medical illness that landed me in the hospital for a good year. They weren't able to discharge me home. So I spent all of, in the U.S., it's called the sixth grade of school as a patient in the hospital. And, you know, you can imagine a, a young girl gets pretty bored every day in a hospital. So the nurses would put me to work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because I was a little bit older than some of the younger children, I would read to them in the playroom or play with them. I was tasked in the afternoon to de deliver the snack carts to the various children that were allowed to have a snack in the evening before bedtime. And so I became very aware of different dietary needs. You know, this child was diabetic, so they had to have the sugar-free snack, or this child was not able to have ice cream because they couldn't tolerate milk. So I, I just became fascinated with hospital work. And so I ended up pursuing a, a bachelor's degree in, in nursing. And I spent my career doing pediatric nursing. So I ended up being a pediatric nurse, sort of that, you know, pay it forward. The nurses were so kind to me and took good care of me that I thought, I think I can do that for a career. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, clever free labor that they got out of you there, that made, but they made it fun. So I'm presuming that that's, that, that was their angle. You've yeah. seen a lot of shifts in medicine in the time you've worked in it, Jennifer. I imagine mostly positive, but obviously some negative as we'll come on to talk about. When you're working in San Francisco, you worked with a doctor who I believe was the first clinician to be able to take an unborn baby out of a mother's womb operate on it and then successfully reinsert it back into the womb, which just pff, blew my mind. I didn't even know that was medically possible. How did you react to that when it happened? Well, you know, I was working in a university hospital where we were already doing all kinds of cutting edge things. So this is just one example of one of the things. So it wasn't unusual. You know, in my mind, it was cool because this particular child would have been born with a, an illness that if repaired, the child would be perfectly healthy and normal. But if the repair didn't happen until after they were born, then this child could live with horrible consequences of that defect or not even survive. So I thought it was really cool that we were able to do that, but it was just one of many cool things. You know, I opened up, um, was involved in opening the first pediatric bone marrow transplant unit we weren't doing bone marrow transplants in children at the time. So, you know, we were just constantly pushing the envelope, good and bad. You also worked with a lot of families and children of divorce, which is never nice for anyone involved in them. How did you see the mental health of the children involved be impacted on not just amicable divorces, but also the more toxic ones? Yeah, obviously, when you do pediatric nursing, you're dealing with infants all the way up to adolescence. So it's, it depends on the, you know, the age of the child. A lot of times the divorce would happen during the child's course of illness. And you look at parents that are taking care of chronically ill children or children with severe illnesses, the stress and strain that puts on marriage. Of course, that translates also to other children in the home because the parents are more attentive to the ill child. And so other children in the home feel neglected and don't feel like their needs. So there's just a lot of pressure that's put on couples that are in marriage relationships. So whether they're divorced coming into the hospital context with a sick child or the marriage breaks down during, you know, just the trauma of dealing with a sick child. And again, just depending on the age of the child, you would see different sort of outcomes. You know, children oftentimes just act out. They get real clingy. They regress in their development. So somebody that's maybe potty trained you know, and can use the toilet, you know, reverts back to wanting to be in diapers because they're just, you know, they're just dealing with their own trauma and stress of seeing their own family breakdown. 
it's a whole level that you know we have to incorporate into just taking care of the medical mm. needs of just the child. You know, when you take care of children, you're really taking care of the whole family. On this journey, you then pursued a graduate degree in biomedical ethics, and you developed this deep passion for ethics in medicine. So, how did that? end up leading to your interest in the very controversial subject of surrogacy maybe add a bit of context for listeners too about it you know when you are in university hospitals that are developing the next treatment cure medical device it always raises ethical questions especially in the case of dealing with premature infants you know babies are born more and more and more premature and we're able to intervene more and more and more and so what used to be a 26 week old baby that would be born that wouldn't survive, you know, now it was 24 weeks and 23 and 22, you know, the whole area of transplant medicine and transplanting organs, you know, heart transplants in children. So we were always mindful of ethics. And I, because of my concern for parents, I mean, parents ultimately have to make the decisions for their child because children can't consent because they're minors. They can't understand informed consent. They can't weigh risks and benefits and say, yes, I'd like to you know, undergo this procedure. So making sure that parents who have to live with the choices that they make are prepared. And so that led me to pursue a degree that was concentrated on ethics. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, those kind of profound questions you could sit around and never solve. But, you know, because my my heart was really toward the parents that have to, once a child is discharged from the hospital or once a child dies, our job as nurses is done. I knew that these parents had to live with these decisions for the rest of their life and making sure that they felt at least that they made the best possible decision they could have made, given whatever horrible circumstances they might be in. And so then when I was in graduate school, I decided to leave clinical nursing. I had done clinical nursing for 20 years. I felt like I was you know, a well-seasoned <laughs> medical professional in the nursing field. And I founded the nonprofit that I now run that wanted to take what I saw kind of coming in the whole biomedical ethics, human cloning, designer babies, you know, where technology is going, you know, we're now raising animals in artificial wombs. Will we raise human beings in artificial wombs and become an educational nonprofit so that the public could weigh in versus, you know, bureaucrats just tell us this is how we're going to make babies now, how we're going to treat people. My friend at Stanford University likes to say that bioethics is a conversation and that we all have a voice in the conversation. You know, therapists should have part of the conversation. Lawyers, of course, doctors, nurses, social workers, philosophers. Um, if you're uh, the religious perspective, you could imagine working in a university hospital. You know, we took care of children that were Catholic. We took care of Muslim children. We took care of Jewish children. We took care of, you know, straight up plain vanilla Protestant children. We took care of, you know, what they used to call gypsies, the Roma, you know, all the different cultures. So bioethics is a conversation that I feel we all have a stake in and we all have a right to say how we think the future should look especially as it relates to our health care and our health and our well-being. Let's talk about the first of your films on surrogacy, which is the very good and dark pun of the title, Exploitation. So tell me, first of all, Jen, why you wanted to make the film. This film was my first film I made, and it was made at the height in the United States, and I believe it was happening in the United Kingdom too, the height of the human cloning debates. And we were debating on all these surplus human embryos that had been created through assisted reproductive technology 
or IVF, which came from your country, you know, Louise Brown, the first test tube baby. So there was this huge public debate around how we were going to develop cures using these surplus human embryos. And so I started really investigating into fertility medicine. How is it that, you know, in, in the U.S., we have a million. The United Kingdom has close to 2 million, I believe. I haven't checked recently, but you have more because you've been doing assisted reproductive technology longer than the U.S. because you've developed the technology in your country. You know, how do we come to have those? And then I started learning about young women who were asked or offered ads. You know, they show up in Facebook, they're on Instagram, all of social media, young girls will see ads to sell their eggs, you know, make money, help a couple have a baby. And in my research, I started writing about that and started speaking about that and raising concerns. We decided to, as a world, do this huge cloning embryonic stem cell therapy to help people. Where were we going to get the raw material? We would need eggs from young girls. You don't magically just pick them out of the air. And in my writing and speaking, young women who sold their eggs in the United States started contacting me. Nobody warned me of the risks. Nobody warned me of the harms. You're the first person I've ever heard that's raised. Let me tell you my story. And so I had all these women that were reaching out to me. And so I just asked them if they'd be willing to make a film. I'd never made a movie. I didn't know the first thing about making movies. I tell people my experience and I used to watch movies. <laughs> so... And they were brave enough to allow me to tell their stories on camera. And that's how I got into filmmaking. Mm. And we won Best Documentary at the California Independent Film Festival Award. And I made that film in a weekend. Wow. Yeah. Two days of shooting. <laughs> Going back to what you said there on the adverts, when I watched the film, what struck me about that is that a lot of the adverts that you posted showed candidates were being highlighted or asked for their specific nationalities or religions so Asian or East Indian or Jewish or Mediterranean for example I'm sure there were others at first glance I thought isn't this some sort of like racist fertility eugenics well it is but also it's because parents want a child that looks like them so if they're a Mediterranean or Italian descent or African-American they're going to look for the genetic material that's going to create a child that looks right. more like that. Okay. But it is, it is a bit of eugenics. It's picking and choosing through catalogs because then it's not also just characteristics like physical characteristics. It is SAT scores. I don't know what the equivalent in the United Kingdom is. You take exams. <laughs> we used to do SATs university. as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we do them now. <laughs> so you have, you know, they want smart girls eggs, which is why the Ivy League universities in the United States are fertile ground, no pun intended, fertile ground for finding young women. Their, you know, their tuition is sky high. They're at an Ivy League school. They're much desired because they're smart, they're pretty, they're talented. And so there's a lot of advertisement that you'll see at places like Columbia University or even Stanford University. Mm. One of the women in my film, or actually two of them were Stanford students, which isn't an Ivy League, but it's a very posh private university. The feeling that I got, Jen, from these adverts is that they're trying to take advantage or maybe even exploit at worst a sort of altruistic demographic of women who simply want to help other women or men unable to have children. And there's a line in the film that says, they think this is my duty. This is what I signed up for. Is there, I don't know if this is a cruel question, but is there a purpose gap in life for these women that they feel that they want to do this? Or is it just financial, like you said, and their fees are 
astronomical? I think it's both. But, you know, one woman I interviewed, and she's the subject of a short film I did called Maggie's Story. And this is very common. Egg donors get a call back because the parents who use this young girl's eggs now want a sibling. So they want a sibling that matches the first child that they have. You know, so the siblings will be connected. They'll be, this, you know, genetic sisters or brothers. And so there's this guilt, this pressure. Oh, you help this family. They just love the child. The child's wonderful. And now they want a brother or sister for the, their baby, you know, or, or another, you know, whatever. And so there's that kind of guilt, pressure. You said yes to them once. Why wouldn't you say yes to them again? You know, this is a noble desire. They want a sibling for this child that they have. So there's that kind of pressure. And of course, the financial, you know, I, I often say if women aren't being paid to do this, most of them aren't going to do it. I want to read out a few of the stats from the film to give the context about the industry and the efficacy of surrogacy itself, because they really surprised me. So in 2010, the Center for Disease Control said in the US, there were 100,000 assured reproductive cycles performed using non-donor eggs. Now, less than 20% resulted in live births with 80,000 failed cycles. 17,000 of those used donor eggs, which increases the chance of live birth, but it also increases the risk to the mother. As well as that, almost 70% of ART cycles fail. That 20% number seems like a pretty small number for a process so risky. So why are the numbers so big? Well, there's just a huge failure rate. You know, even though we've been doing this kind of technology for decades now, there's still a huge failure rate. It's really hard to make tiny little human embryos in the laboratory. You know, it's done with human hands and, you know, there's a lot of nuance to getting the sperm to fertilize the egg and then get the embryo to start developing. And then it has to develop for a few days in the laboratory. And oftentimes it will undergo some kind of genetic testing because, you know, people, they want a product that's healthy. So they'll sometimes genetically test the embryos. Does this embryo have Down syndrome? Does this embryo have any other kind of illness. Sex selection IVF is very popular in California where I live. Is it a girl embryo? Is it a boy embryo? Because we want a sibling, but we want a girl now or a boy. And then we try to transfer that embryo into the woman's uterus. So there's so many little steps along the way. And if you're using the own woman's egg and the own man's sperm, not using a sperm donor or a healthy egg donor, you might be dealing with eggs and sperm that are already having trouble. I mean, these people have tried to conceive and couldn't. That's why they're in the infertility doctor's office. So you're dealing with couples that might already have some underlying defect in, in their gametes, egg and sperm or gametes. So there's all these factors that drive this huge failure rate. And then, you know, we don't have national health in the U.S. like you do in your country. So this, for most couples, it's out of pocket. They're spending tens of thousands of dollars. And there's this lore. One of my films is called Big Fertility. It's all about the money. They've got these people that are desperate for a child. They've been trying. They want a child. They want to be parents. And the doctor will say, well, we'll try it again. And we'll try it this way or we'll try it that way. We'll, we'll use donor eggs the next time. We'll use donor sperm. And one woman wrote a book and she describes it as being on the superhighway. And there's no exit ramps because there's this lure that the next time will work. It's like the gambler at the slot machine and keeps losing, but they go, oh, but the next time I'm going to win, you know, the next time I'm going to get that baby. One of the, the many things that shocked me was hearing that there is no tracking of egg donors post-donation. So any health complications or consequences can't be monitored. I think this is what one of your interviewees, Dr. Suzanne Parisian said, who is former medical director of the FDA. Now, as a 
person who's just come into it not knowing anything when I first watched this film, Jen, surely it's in the industry's interest to show the outside world the practice is as safe as possible so they can demonstrate how the donor's health is after donation, right? Yeah, have you watched Big Tobacco and how the <laughs> smoking industry fought tooth and nail that they didn't want to have to warn people that smoking might be bad? I mean, it will, it's bad for business to say 70, 80% of the time we're going to try it and it's, it's going to fail. And the couple's looking at maybe a $40,000 US dollar bill for something that fails. It's bad business to fully disclose, you know, the scales are tipped and weighted toward the industry not wanting. Why do we not track egg donors to show how many of them were harmed? How many of them lost their own ability to ever have their own children? How many of them went on to get cancers because of the fertility drugs and the high dose fertility drugs these women take? It's bad for business to track that because if they track it, they'll have the data and then they have to report it. And that data becomes out there for anybody who, you know, is looking for it. You know, I've lobbied Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. that we need because we track organ donors. So if I give you my kidney, I'm in a registry, a database, and you are. And they know that my kidney came out of my body and went into your body so we can track you and me over the course of our lifetime and see how well we did. And I say, why can't we do that? And they go, oh, it's so much money. Who's going to pay for this? We'd have to set up a whole nother, you know, it's the bureaucracy that doesn't want it. But then, of course, the doctors are not lobbying on Capitol Hill saying, we need to make sure that we're protecting women's health. And we need to make sure if we're asking young women to do this, that we can look them straight in the eye and say, this is safe. I want to frame the next part of our discussion around one of your case studies called Kylie. Can you tell me about her story and how, for her, it unfolded into this horrific living nightmare? Yeah, Kylie, I'll get to the end first. She suffered a massive stroke and she will never, ever be able to have children of her own. She's lost her own ability to be a mother of her own genetic children. Now, she may be able to adopt or become a mother another way, but... Kylie's story is interesting because it sort of highlights not only the health risk, but the reproductive tourism, the globalness of it. So Kylie sold her eggs to a couple in Canada. And Canada does not allow women to be paid to sell their eggs. It doesn't allow women to be surrogate mothers to rent out their uterus, their wombs. So it's not uncommon for Canadian couples to find an egg donor in the United States. And so they can pay her down here but they can still use her eggs in Canada because Canadian law allows people to use donor eggs. It's just you can't do the financial transaction in Canada. So Kylie was flown to Canada, you know, was given all of her medications, was told, you know, what to do, was sent back. At the time, I think she was living in Florida. She flew back to Florida, took all of her medications. Then when it was time to retrieve the eggs, which is a surgical procedure, she flew back to Canada to have the surgery and things went terribly wrong for her in having her eggs retrieved. She developed what's commonly called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, OHSS, where the ovaries just get huge like grapefruits. There's so much fluid and swelling. And that's what causes a stroke. You know, water, what's the saying about water? It always finds a way, a place to go. You know, when you have a leak in your house, it sort of just goes. You know, in our bodies, when we have fluid where it's not supposed to be, it just leaks out. And so that's what caused her to have a stroke. But meanwhile, the Canadian doctor says, oh, great, we got all your eggs. We're going to get back to the airport and fly home. 
I mean, the same day, can you imagine flying from Canada to Florida? I mean, that's thousands of miles on the day you had a medical surgical procedure. And she's sick as a dog in the airport. She's so sick that she describes how she gets down on the floor and lays on the floor in the airport. You know, nobody wants to lay on an airport floor because God knows what's on that floor. <laughs> you know, she's vomiting. She's just sick. She gets home. Her boyfriend's with her. He's worried. She has the doctor's phone number. She's calling the doctor. He's, you know, he's downplaying it. You'll probably be fine. Drink some Gatorade. Gatorade helps move the fluid. You know, it's an electrolyte thing that pulls the fluid out of spaces where it shouldn't be and tries to move the fluid and equalize that. And finally, her boyfriend says, I'm done with this. I'm calling 911. I'm calling the ambulance because she's just so sick. And she suffered a massive stroke at the hospital. And it wasn't until a few minutes into because the hospital doesn't know that she's just flown back from Canada to sell her eggs. The hospital just has this young woman who's, you know, semi barely conscious and, you know, they're trying to just manage the stroke. But then once they found out, and I can't remember if it was the boyfriend or Kylie, you know, that she had just gone through, you know, egg donation, they immediately went, oh, she has ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. You know, that was important information for them because they can then retreat her for that condition versus just somebody who's suffering a stroke. And because of that, the stroke in her case, and another woman in the film Exploitation also had a stroke and lost her ability to have children. Mm. You know, the stroke happens in the pituitary gland, the base of our brain. In, in, in women, our brain is what controls our menstrual cycle, our fertility. You know, our pituitary gland is releasing all those hormones that cause us to have our periods, to be fertile, you know. And so when that is obliterated through a stroke, you know, you've lost that technique. Mm. She still has residual effect of her stroke. She says whenever she gets in the shower, she makes sure that she tests the water with, I think it's her right hand because her left hand doesn't always have good sensation. So she doesn't want to burn herself mm. because she can't tell if something's really hot. So she has to use her right hand. To me, it's just unconscionable that we would do this to people. Mm. This gets back to my medical ethics. <laughs> what the hell are doctors doing? Mm. Of the other interviewees you spoke to, Jennifer, Alexandra lost an ovary. She had huge internal bleeding and she also developed peritonitis. Cindy almost bled to death and Lindy and Latoya were also got OHSS, as you just eloquently put it. The worst part of the film that I found was Jessica and the case study of her who donated her eggs three times. She was diagnosed with colon cancer. I'm thinking as a result of that donation and then tragically died. For me, this would be corporate manslaughter in any other scenario so why wasn't someone held accountable a and b was that the hardest part of the film for you well it's all hard for me i mean just listening to you know it is sad because she died it's sad that kylie had a stroke and won't ever be able to have children but you know of course for jessica she's lost her life as far as being held responsibility and i'm not really savvy on your laws in the united kingdom but the way it is in the united states you have to be able to pretty directly prove that her colon cancer was a direct result of her egg donation. It gets back to the fact that we don't want to track this. We don't want to study it. We don't want to have any data because without the data, you can't say, yes, women that take high dose fertility drugs and Jessica sold her egg three times. So she you know, repeatedly did this to her body. And so without being able to make that connection, it's really hard to get a, a lawsuit. Now, Kylie and Kala, Kala was at Stanford and Kylie was the woman who sold her eggs in Canada. They both did have legal lawsuits 
but that was because the stroke is so immediately connected to the egg donation procedure. Why else would a young woman suffer a stroke? Young women don't suffer strokes the day of or the day after. So there was such a connection there. But again, these were court cases in the U.S. that were settled out of court, which means they're gagged. Nobody gets to know who was awarded how much money or who was at fault. We just know it was settled out of court, which isn't helpful because in the U.S., if you have precedent cases that you can point to, you know, here was a case that was settled and they were awarded and they were proven to be bad doctors, victims, you know, then you can use that as precedent setting legal cases, but we can't use their cases that way because they were settled out of court. How many other deaths have there been from surrogacy? What's the statistics on it? Was Jessica a one-off or, that, or do people not even know the tip of the iceberg? You keep saying surrogacy, but we're talking about egg donation. Egg donation, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So how many? When you're not tracking, you know, I have this saying on my computer, what doesn't get counted doesn't count. And so they don't count. So if there are deaths, we don't know about them. And when a woman goes into the emergency room, the cause of death that goes on a death certificate probably won't say she was an egg donor. It might not even say she had an OHSS. Cause of death might be listed as stroke. Cause of death might be listed as breast cancer. Alexandra had breast cancer. You know, so the actual cause of death, if you try to like just go through and data mine death certificates of young girls, you wouldn't be able to necessarily connect this back to an egg donation kind of a death. I want to move on to the concept of surrogacy and what people know about it in popular culture, Jennifer, because this is the main reason I wanted to ask you on. In the last decade, and especially the last couple of years, a number of high profile and sort of middle profile, I would say, celebrities have used surrogates publicly in order to have children. So conservative commentator and I guess member, if you want to call him, of the intellectual dark web, Dave Rubin announced he and his partner were having twins from a surrogate, but there have been other examples in the past. Gay men couples obviously can't conceive naturally. So this is, I presume, why they will utilise surrogacy. What is your perspective on it? And what would you say to people who say those who criticise this are even homophobic? Well, I'd just say they're wrong because there's a lot of people like myself who oppose surrogacy for anybody. I don't care if you're gay or you're straight or you're single or you're a unicorn. Um, You have no business jeopardizing a young woman, young mother's health. I think it's important to make the distinction for your listeners that the egg donor and the surrogate women are two different targeted groups. Right. You know, you're not going to find 20 something year old girls on university campuses that want to walk around nine months pregnant. They're going to want the quick egg donation money. Egg donation takes about four weeks. And in four weeks in the U.S., you can make $15,000. Well, if you can make $15,000 in four weeks, that's serious money. So the profile of the surrogate mother is a young woman who's already had children. She's usually a young mom. And she's of lower income in the United States. And if you look in the third world countries or Ukraine right now, where we have a huge surrogacy crisis, you know, those are more impoverished women. But they're going to be low income perhaps even lower education, not necessarily, but they're going to have little ones at home. And for different reasons, surrogacy is very, very risky to the mother's health and to the health of the baby or babies she's carrying. Oftentimes surrogates carry twins. You know, you get two babies for the price of one. This is very expensive technology. And if you can get two babies in one pregnancy or three babies, we've had quite a few triplet pregnancies in the U.S., 
And we've had quite a few pretty sad surrogate mother deaths in the United States as well. You spoke there about triplet surrogacies and the first example I can ever think of being exposed to the topic, Jennifer, as a teenager or I can't remember when the episode came out officially, but it was in a Friends episode and a storyline where Phoebe became a surrogate for her, I think it was her younger brother, Frank, because his partner was too old to have children herself. Now she carried what ended up being triplets, gave birth to them. And then there was this really emotional scene where she had to accept that she had to give them up. Do you remember that? And what do you think it did to the conversation around surrogacy? Well, I remember, but I'll tell you, it's a distant, distant memory. <laughs> it is for me. Very old, <laughs> very old show. And I guess I would say it didn't really do much for the conversation because surrogacy is booming business. And if it did anything, it should have really raised those kind of questions of attachment mm. and separation and maternal child bonding. And why was it that, you know, Phoebe had such, you know, turmoil of relinquishing those children. It didn't seem to make the surrogacy big fertility industry skip a beat, sadly. I want to move on to the second film we're going to discuss, which you mentioned already, which is Big Fertility. And you framed it around one particular case study called Kelly. She was a three-time surrogate, I believe, and yes. it examined the industry more widely. So why did you make that creative choice as a filmmaker? And how did it compare to, say, exploitation or other films you've done? I made Big Fertility because it did bring in the international complexities. So what's illegal in one country is legal in another country and how it drives sort of the movement. So you'll see couples in, say, example, you know, the United Kingdom, where you're not really allowed to adequately. I mean, surrogates are compensated in the United Kingdom. Your structure is altruistic, but there's still you know, monetary compensation that women receive. You know, France forbids all surrogacy, Spain forgives, you know, forgive Germany. So it just encourages this reproductive tourism. So Kelly was a surrogate for a gay couple in France. Then she was a surrogate for a heterosexual couple in the U.S. And then her last surrogacy was for a heterosexual couple in Spain. What was interesting about her story, too, it highlighted the medical risks. I mean, Kelly almost died. The baby she was carrying for the Spanish couple almost died because she was in such a high-risk pregnancy category to the end that she had to have an emergency C-section. The babies were delivered premature. And it also highlights just how horrible she was treated. She was mm -hmm. exploited. She was exploited by the French couple. And, you know, I don't have time to unpack what they did to her. But there was, was a lot going to the, if you want to, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was told she had to go to the French consulate in the United States in Chicago and she had to lie and say she slept with one of the men in order for these babies to be recognized as French babies and get a passport. So when they left the United States with their twins, the little twins had French passports and were seen as French Bonkers. Um, you know, yeah. citizens. And Kelly's like, what the heck? I've got you know, she obviously didn't sleep with these men. And it shows, you know, the Spanish couple skipped town. They came and got their babies and they never paid her hospital bills. And if you can imagine the hospital bills of a woman who's in a high-risk pregnancy, emergency C-section, delivers twins born prematurely, you know, she had about $11,000 worth of unpaid medical bills. And she was poor. She was being a surrogate because she needed money. And the collectors are coming after her and her credit got ruined because she wasn't paying these bills that were going to collection. And so she reached out to me and we opened the movie with the email that she sent me. And it's basically a cry for help. You know, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I cannot pay these bills. Can you help me? 
And I ended up traveling to Madrid, Spain. He wanted to poke the Spanish government in the eye because it was a Spanish couple that did this. And she emailed the agency in the United States that had brokered the surrogacy agreement. And she emailed them and said, tomorrow I'm going to Spain with Jennifer Lull to speak to all the members of the Spanish parliament. And the next day the agency paid all of her bills. Wow. So they had the money, mm. but they just thought, well, we're just going to screw her over because she can't hire an attorney. She can't come after us. She has no resources because they didn't want to be seen in bad light, which is great because we just tell that story over and over again about how they had the money and they refused to pay. And they made so much money off of her and she almost paid for this with her life. I'm sure that must have been a very powerful moment for you, Jennifer. On the second surrogacy, what shocked me here, and there was a lot, there was a lot of things that shocked me, as you can imagine, listeners, <laughs> was that she was seeking counselling because of the impact of the first surrogacy, and the counsellor recommended another couple they should contact to do another surrogacy. Isn't that exploitation as well? I mean, it's all kinds of ethical professional violations I would think of of your code of conduct when you're in a counseling session treating somebody that's struggling with depression Kelly she has PTSD it's not uncommon for surrogates to have official proper diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder and her therapist is pimping her out like it's a john go sleep with them go help them have a baby and then this couple ends up divorcing so right after Kelly has a baby for them, then they divorce and the father has custody and the mother doesn't want anything to do with the child. I mean, it's a total mess that this therapist sort of brokered. You just kind of have to scratch your head. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of that, to be honest. You mentioned earlier in the pod, Jen, about Ukraine and the Ukraine-Russia situation. And you've been doing a lot more media in the past couple of months because of the war in Ukraine and this surrogacy crisis, like you said, which has emerged. So what is the truth here? What is going on in Ukraine when it comes to surrogacy that has meant your expert opinion has been required? Well, what happened happening now in Ukraine happened also around the world during the global lockdowns because of the pandemic. What you have when you have this reproductive tourism, you know, you have babies being born in one country and the purchasing parents in another country that are either because of lockdowns and travel bans can't get there or because of war. And so you have this situation where in the Ukraine, you know, there's surrogates who are still actively pregnant but haven't delivered yet. So they've lost a lot of their own rights. You know, they're being told by their agency, you need to go move away. You need to leave. You have to go far away where you're safe because we're trying to protect the product. Couples have paid big money for these babies. So in, in that case, these women are, you know, having to perhaps leave their families because they're being told where they have to go until the pregnancy is delivered. Or in the case where the surrogate's already delivered, my understanding is most of the children are being just taken care of by caretakers. So they're not staying with the surrogate mothers. They're you know, being removed from the surrogate mother. Her job is done. You know, her contract is complete. Here's your final payment. And we saw a lot of that in photos during the pandemic where you would see you know, like a big hotel room that just had one crib after another oh, with you know, a couple of women in there taking care of them. We don't have those kind of photos now. And I think that's mostly because it's war versus a pandemic. And mm. so we don't have the luxury of media people and journalists to be able to get in. We do have reporting on the story. And we've already seen, I think, five American couples have been able to get their babies out of Ukraine. And I have a, a colleague, well, I shouldn't say colleague, it's a 
a friend of, you know, in this social media world, you say friend, it's like somebody I've never met, but somebody <laughs> I interact with on social media all the time. So I feel like she's a friend, but she was actually in the U.S. State Department meeting maybe four weeks ago now. And she said the whole entire conversation at the state board meeting was around getting surrogate babies that were U.S. products, babies back to America and how the American government could go in and get those babies and get them home to their families. But back to the mental health issues. I mean, can you imagine that what one of the mental health issue of children? I mean, we know in the first year of a baby's life, there's so much happening, you know, developmentally, mental develop, cognitive development, speech, language, cues, all that. And so they're in one environment where for maybe months they're hearing a language that they're never going to hear again. You know, we had a woman in the U.S. during the pandemic that was caring for a, a Chinese baby, you know, and she had the baby for a year. And then can you imagine the trauma of that child to then be removed after a year in this, I'm assuming, a nurturing, loving, caring environment, and then, you know, go worlds away to strangers a strange land, a strange language, a strange custom, strange smells. I mean, Chinese food doesn't smell anything like hot dogs and hamburgers, you know. Unless you go to Chinatown, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you just have to think, and then the trauma, of course, you know, my own research shows the PTSD that surrogates have. The postpartum depression is higher when a, a woman has a surrogate pregnancy than with her own pregnancy. There was another example of this exploitation of a humanitarian crisis that you wanted to talk about, Jennifer, which is Nepal and an earthquake that happened there. Can you tell the listeners what happened there? That was just shameful. You know, there was, it's been quite a few years ago now. I don't, maybe four or five years ago, there was a, you know, huge devastating earthquake in Nepal, a very impoverished poor country. And a lot of the Nepalese women that were surrogates there were surrogates predominantly for gay men in Israel, because at the time, Israel only allowed heterosexual couples to engage in surrogacy contracts. That law has since changed, so now gay men are free to exploit women, just like heterosexual people can exploit women. And you would see these photos and the reporting of these wealthy Israeli men being flown into Nepal to pick up their babies with absolutely total disregard for these women who were left behind. I mean, these are poor women, probably many of them illiterate, uneducated, and they're living in rubble. Their cities, you know, their buildings are just destroyed. And I, you know, back to the Phoebe um, moment in Friends, you know, you would think those kinds of images would rock the public conscience to say, what are we doing? What are we doing in this industry that's all about helping people make dreams come true, help build families. Dave Rubin, he'll be such a wonderful dad. Let's help him and his partner. Yeah, there's a lot of murky questions there, which I feel that people don't really understand right now. I want to reflect on this part of your journey, Jen, if we can. So you've worked in medicine for the time you've had. You've been a nurse. You've been a filmmaker and a campaigner. What did the films teach you about yourself? And what has this journey taught you about yourself? Hmm. Well, I hate injustice. You know, I really hate injustice. And I really hate injustice at the hands of the medical profession, the healthcare profession. I take very seriously the do no harm mantra. You know, medicine is a healing profession. 
it's a curing profession, it's a alleviating suffering profession. And I think for me, it's sort of really heightened my awareness, like what drives me? And then I drilled down and that's where I landed. I don't like injustice. And, you know, when I look at what I'm seeing as it relates to maternal child health, because that's an area where I have deep passion from my years of working in pediatrics, you know, because you're taking care of the whole family, the mother and the child, I don't like the exploitation and the injustice that's done. And I hate seeing what medicine has become. You know, when I left nursing, when I started nursing school, that was when nurses still wore the white hats. <laughs> I have like my graduation pictures of me in the little white hat. You know? <laughs> and, you know, we had patients, we had patients and we had doctors and we had nurses. Now in the U.S., we have clients, we have customers, we have service providers. Uses, you don't have yeah. a mm. physician anymore. You have somebody who's just providing you services. Like when you take your car to the car shop, he's the automobile technician who's going to fix your car. So, you know, and I think just those shifts in language are very profound, you know, that we're no longer seeing the patient as a person. We're just seeing them as somebody who's here to fix this, fix that, do this. And, you know, if that means we have to hurt this person over here to help you over here, well, I'm just providing services. You want a baby? You're going to need some eggs. You're going to need to rent a womb. You're going to need this, you know. We've talked about your professional and medical journey, Jennifer. I want to talk a little bit deeper now and talk about your own journey. So I ask all my special guests this question first on this topic. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's Jennifer we meet here? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure I had mental health. I mean, just being in the hospital for a year and not being able to do the normal things. You know, there were sometimes, you know, days that were very sad for me. Um, that I would cry and I didn't really understand why I couldn't go home and I just missed my friends and you know I had just gotten a brand new bike that was just sitting in the garage for a whole year and I was, you know just that, that was quite difficult it was hard on especially my older sister you know so she had some anger issues with me because she thought I was sucking all the oxygen out of the air with my mom and dad being so attentive and at the hospital every day to visit me to see me you know, I shared with you that later on in my life, my parents went through a divorce. So I was an adult by the time my parents divorced. But, you know, there was just a lot of stress in the home that, you know, eventually culminated in my parents divorcing. So I wouldn't say that I had this perfect kind of happy home life. I don't want to paint it as, you know, there was no abuse, there was no violence, but it just wasn't, you know, a, a happy home where I knew my parents loved each other and my family was so harmonious. That was a challenge. You know, as a young nurse, I've shared before on other podcasts, you know, because I am older. So when I went to nursing school and was a young nurse, it was way before the Me Too movement. So doctors were very sexist to young nurses. You know, it was not uncommon for doctors to pat you on the bottom, you know, to call you darling and sweetheart and go get me a cup of coffee, which, you know, <laughs> right now, if that happened, you'd head off to the human resource department and you'd file a sexual harassment <laughs> so you know dealing with that you know that put me on my guard as a young woman and you know as a young woman when you're a new nurse you're working all the horrible night shifts and the graveyard shifts so you're walking to your car at night you know sort of put me on high alert to made me feel more vulnerable as a woman um, which has certainly shaped 
myself now because I travel all the time now as a woman. And a lot of people will ask me to do things and I say, no, you don't understand. I'm very careful. I'm a woman. I travel all over the world. I travel alone. You know, no, I won't stay in a, you know, a lot of times people want to save money. Will you stay in somebody's house? I don't feel safe. I don't know these people. I don't stay in strangers' houses. But I get asked that because people are, you know, everybody who's campaigning has low budgets. They don't have money. <laughs> so Going back to that hospital stay, I mean, being in it for an entire year of your childhood is quite an extraordinary thing to do, actually, when you think about it. So are you pretty proud that you were able to get to the place you are now and it didn't hinder your life chances in any way? You know, I always say that which does not kill us only makes us stronger. You know, and all those circumstances that we go through, good or bad, you know, really shape us and make us who we are. And, you know, I'm not the person I was 10 years ago. I'm not the person I was 20 years ago. I have a lot to be grateful for that, you know, I never imagined when I was working all those years in nursing that I'd be doing what I'm doing now and making movies, telling stories through film. So I, I just feel like the culmination of all of your life experiences are constantly shaping you to take you to whatever the next phase is. The final thing you wanted to discuss in this mental health journey, Jennifer, is the impact that working in critical care had on you. And you said to me sometimes you would you know, come home from a 12-hour shift trying to save a child's life, and then you'd come the next day and find out that they had passed away. So how did you recover from something like that? And how did you emotionally detached if that's even possible so you protect your own mental health for the future and be able to do your work to the best of your ability yeah i mean there were a lot of tears you know you just you know work a 12-hour shift and you'd be absolutely physically mentally exhausted and then the child dies and you have to deliver horrible news to parents and so there was you know there's a lot of times i just would come home and my husband would be like oh how was your day and my husband's always worked in like high tech <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, we closed a big deal and we're presenting on a new product. And how was your day? Oh, well, we, you know, we had a baby die, you know, and we, for 12 hours, we were literally trying to save their life. <laughs> and I just sort of sit on the couch and cry. And he, he oftentimes didn't understand, but he obviously, you know, he grew to understand because, you know, that was early on in our, our marriage. But, you know, what I did was I had to shift and I shifted my last 10 years, I shifted into management. And so I left the actual direct patient care at the bedside and shifted into being a nurse manager. And that allowed me to still stay in the hospital, still stay actively involved in nursing, but in a whole different capacity. So I managed a busy you know, unit where I was interviewing and hiring nurses and giving performance reviews. And occasionally I would do clinical nursing because I'd have to, you know, spell somebody who needed to go on lunch break. And we were short staffed because, you know, in hospitals, you're oftentimes short staffed because somebody calls in sick and you can't get somebody to come in. And I think that helped preserve my sanity too. When you're in management, you're in management over the whole entire hospital. And I wasn't, you know, I was like the second in a very large children's hospital in a big inner city hospital. So, you know, it was just very different because it was just more the business side. So I got to, you know, negotiate union contracts, work through strikes, human staff would go on strikes. I think that was sort of soul saving. I don't think I could have stayed at the bedside for 20 years because you do, I don't want to speak for all nurses because some do, but you know, you kind of age out. And by then I was a mother. So I was then I was raising my own children and it became more difficult to lose a child at work and then go home and be a mother. And, 
And I didn't want to be one of those hovering mothers that didn't want my kids to do anything because I was afraid they were going to get hurt. I would think I was just sort of like those moms, you know, we're cautious, we're careful, but we do allow our children to play and jump and run and not make them live in bubbles. But yeah, so that was what I did to preserve my mental health was I just changed focus in, in the hospital with a different job. Let's reflect then on your journey before we move on to mental health chat. So if you could go back and talk to the 10-year-old Jennifer who was isolated and lonely for a year in hospital, maybe the Jennifer who was processing the divorce of her parents or the Jennifer trying to navigate nursing in a sexual harassment environment, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? Oh, gosh. I guess for the 10-year-old me, you know, there was a lot of times when I thought I was going to die. And, you know, when, when you're little and you think you're going to die, most little 10-year-olds aren't thinking, I could die. But, you know, I, you know, tell me, you're going to make it. You're going to get through this. And you're going to go on and be a nurse. And you're going to have a great career. And, you know, something good will come out of this. You're being shaped for something that you're going to do for a significant part of your life. As far as the sexual harassment, I would tell myself, be spunkier <laughs> and fight back and say, knock it off. You know, but I was too timid. You know, I was a young nurse. I didn't, when you're in a hospital and you finally have your license, even though you've graduated and you've passed the exam and you have your license, you still know that you don't know a lot. You don't have the real years of experience. So there is a lot of that just uncertainty in my confidence as a profession that made me allow people to treat me that way versus I could speak to her now. I'd say, you know, tell that doctor to knock it off. And tell that doctor not to pat you on the bottom and he can get his own damn coffee. <laughs> Be a little bit more spunky. And I guess as far as the divorce, because it did finally happen when I was older. So I was relieved. Actually, when my parents did finally divorce, I was relieved because they were just so miserable together for so long. So I don't know that I would have any anything you know, I can't think of anything, any pearls of wisdom that I would pass on to that Jennifer. Other than marriage is hard. <laughs> Relationships are hard. <laughs> Our final topic of conversation, Jennifer, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? You know, now that we're getting out of the pandemics and the lockdowns, it's so much better. Actually, on a plane tomorrow, and I'm so excited. I don't have to wear a mask on the plane. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the last, I'll tell you, we were, I don't know about your area where you are, but being in California, we were heavily locked down for a good two and a half years. And, you know, that was a mental health mind F, you know, because I am so much on the go. And to, to have my world just sort of... So now I just feel like, oh, there's light at the end of this tunnel. And, you know, I'm, I'm out and about and I'm smiling and seeing people's faces and doing almost everything that I used to do. So it's good. And if you feel comfortable saying what mental health conditions or issues, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day to day life? I would say, I mean, I, I do have depression, but I am not to the point where I take medication. I just know you know, I, I, I know sort of the, the tools and the things to tell myself, you know, like this shall pass. I know it's, I've had it before and I know it will pass and it usually will pass sooner. I know to do things like get outside, get fresh air, go for a walk. Living in beautiful California, we have amazing ability to just see 
grandeur in, you know, in our state. I would never be able to live in a place like Washington state where it you know, rains all the time and it's gloomy because I need the sun in the wintertime when we change our time and it gets dark at like four o'clock in the evening. My husband knows, okay, here comes the candles. I light the candles. I play music. I put my Christmas lights up really early because I need something sparkly and light, you know? So I, I think at this stage of my life, I just know how to manage it with what works for me. And then, like I said, I just tell myself, I know it will pass because mm. I have a history of it passes. Despite what you went through at age 10, what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Oh, I think for a young girl, it probably happens around the time of menstruation because that's when you get your hormone cycles and things kind of, you know, and that's when you have to start reminding yourself, oh, this will pass. I'm not crazy. <laughs> so yeah, it, it would, clearly would have been at a, at a puberty stage where my body was changing, my hormones were changing, and there would be weeks where I would be absolutely fine. And there'd be other weeks where I just wanted to cry all day long, or I was just, you know, really short tempered. <laughs> Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or maybe a big moment in your life? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant, normal and easy to do? Yeah, for me, it's very, you know, I, I don't mind when, you know, a doctor, I'm in my the office with my physician and they'll say, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm really struggling. It's not hard for me. I don't know if that's because as a nurse, you know, you're just always asking people really <laughs> personal questions you know, and they answer them. So I'm, I'm very open, you know, during the pandemic, I had no problem just telling people, man, I am so depressed. I'm in such a funk. It didn't feel like, you know, I had to keep it. I had to put on my happy face or I could only tell certain people or else they you know want to lock me up in you know some special program for people that are depressed. <laughs> mm. You've spoken there about some of the weather-related triggers you've had. So what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? For me, what really works is you know, I'm a big exercise person and you know, to me exercise helps me a lot helps me sleep. It helps me feel good about myself. It helps me, you know, just clear my mind. You know, there's nothing like, you know, just doing a really hard, I like to lift weights, really heavy weights, or, you know, just get my heart pumping and sweating. For me, what doesn't help is just ruminating, you know, ruminating and, oh, my life sucks. This is awful. Even during the pandemic, we would have times where, you know, as a family, when we'd get together with our kids that are in town, you know, we would at some point, somebody would say, you know, let's, we can't just keep talking about this, you know, how awful it is and how awful we hate masks and how we hate this. We hate. So ruminating does not work, you know, just playing. I have to break those cycles in my head that, you know, I'm so depressed. I'm so mad. This is awful. You know, I have to switch the message. This will pass. I'll get through this. You know how to take care of it. Get outside, get some fresh air, get to the gym, ride your bike. I've got two questions left, Jennifer. So the first one is, what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help even, if you want, related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Ooh, I honestly can't think of a, a book that... I read so much for my job, but it's mm. all like geek, nerdy stuff. <laughs> okay, um, TV show or podcast or anything? Yeah, I love dark TV shows. Okay. No, it, isn't that weird? 
that I work in such a dark kind of space, but I love I love dark shows. It's weird and it's not so, weird. It's some it's, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'm not somebody who's going to gravitate toward comedy or lighthearted musicals or something like that. Yeah, it's definitely going to be dark. I love Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. I do binge sometimes on Joe Rogan if he's got you know good guests that I like to listen to. But honestly, I work probably way too many hours a week. So I don't have a lot of time just to sit and listen to podcasts or watch a lot of television and stuff. I love music and it can't, your audience can't see because it's audio, but I, I play electric guitar. Amazing. So I should say I'm learning electric guitar. I can play <laughs> some, but that's something I took up during the pandemic as sort of a mental health. I need some joy in my life. And I love, I love music. I love to sing. I love to listen to music and I, and I've always wanted to play music. So I'm now playing the electric guitar. I'm working on House of the Rising Sun. Oh, right amazing. Yeah. I love the music of my era. So I'm okay. working on Beatles songs and Cat yeah. Stevens and Metallica. Excellent. Nothing else matters. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I'm a big music nerd. And a lot of my regular listeners will know that. And for anyone who knows me and a lot of people or a lot of guests always point out the Mac Miller artwork I've got in my room and lots of other artwork that I've got posters that I've been to gigs and I've got framed in my in my house so yeah I'm a big believer in what you're doing Jen so yeah thank you for that it's uh, it's always great to talk about music on the podcast I've got one question left for you and this is a broad one I'll, I ask it to all my guests what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it well, in the U.S., we don't take care of people that have mental health needs. You know, if you just look at the, in my state, in San Francisco and Los Angeles, the amount of homelessness that's is exploding. And it's clear that a lot of these people have mental health needs that are not being met. So I think one, as a country, I'll just speak for the U.S., we need to recognize that we have a mental health crisis and we have absolutely no zero plan to address it from what where i sit it truly is at the level of crisis uh, you see it in you know in the military you know you see it in healthcare workers we've we've had quite a few just last week at a hospital in my backyard a nurse showed up at work with a gun and killed herself at work because you know the mental you know the healthcare providers have been under such a strain with just working insane amounts of time. So to me, those are you know you know, when you hear about the classic cries for help, you know when you see the homelessness, when you hear about the healthcare workers showing up to work with a weapon and killing themselves, how much louder can you scream that there's people that need help? And I think once we acknowledge that people need help, then it will be acceptable to say. I need help too. Even though I'm not living on the streets, even though I'm not abusing drugs, even though I'm not bringing weapons to work and killing myself or killing others, I need help and I'm struggling. I have a friend that works for a company that not only offers good healthcare benefits and dental benefits and vision so you can go get your eyes checked and get glasses, but they offer mental health benefits that are good. You know, not just, oh, well, here's three sessions that you can go talk to a psychiatrist or something, you know, and most people don't have the out-of-pocket resources if it's not covered as part of their healthcare coverage. So I think, yeah, we need to, we need to recognize that it's a crisis. And the more we talk about that and we start working to fix it, I think will help people that are struggling. 
And on that note, Jennifer Lyle, thank you so much for coming on the Just Check In podcast and talking to me. Thank you, Freddie. It's been my pleasure. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Check In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Jennifer for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I'll put the links to the two films we discussed in the show notes. And as I found out from Jennifer, the underworld of Sugracy is a very dark and extremely disturbing place. I hope this pod has helped my female listeners out there and made you reflect on whether this practice is truly ethical or not. It's up to you. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithm. If you like what we're doing here at Vents, please consider supporting us at Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash VentsHelpUK, or one word, V-E-N-T-H-E-L-P-U-K. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Bye.